Zephyr, hi. Welcome to the Motherkind podcast. Thank you so much for being here and making the time and inviting me to your beautiful home. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so, um, for those who don't know Zephyr, she is an incredible yoga teacher and an inspiration to me personally. She's been a huge support to me over the years and Zephyr's wisdom, you know, runs across so many teachings. So I'm really excited to hear what she's going to share with us. So Zephyr, to start with, could you tell us your journey, how you came to be the teacher that you you are today? Well, um, it started off kind of being influenced by my mom because she was a yoga teacher. Um, she was also an aerobics instructor and um, I kind of grew up around, uh, I grew up on a hippie commune. It was kind of a part of, you know, the lifestyle, but I actually didn't really take it too seriously until I was over here in England and I found myself physically crippled, um, for about nine months. I was on crutches and they couldn't figure out what was going on, but I had, um, bone issues in my feet where it's like early onset osteoporosis and, um, I, it was like the foundation of my life was physically melting. And at the same time, I started doing yoga. I started going to the 12-step recovery program, Al-Anon. So they kind of coincided my start of this kind of seeking um, spiritual well-being, but also the physicality of like removing pain. And um, I took to it because it was the only thing better than any painkiller, better than any uh, physiotherapy the yoga practice for me to rebuild the strength of my body, the flexibility, um, but then also that kind of weaving in the psychology, the philosophy, and that kind of sense of physical, mental, and spiritual resilience that I found in both platforms. And um, one of my teachers just said, Zeph, I can't be here next week. Um, Can you cover the class? And I was like, okay. And because I saw my mom teach and she taught massage therapy, she had her own school, I was around a female archetype who was a teacher and I embodied that role really well and I felt very natural in it. And then my teacher was like, they're doing a yoga campus teacher training. Would you be interested in doing it? So I was on their first intake and studying and I, I found myself being more drawn into learning the anatomy physiology, learning how to fix people and merging it with my massage training that I had and sports med training. And then my interest in spiritual and emotional and mental well-being. So the psychology side of it. So it's kind of from all different angles, you know, um, me becoming a yoga teacher, I had to suffer quite a lot to actually give me that push to change my lifestyle and seek out the things um, that have healed me. And how has your your journey to a teacher helped you? Because I know, you know you've faced some incredible challenges in your life. Mm-hmm. And can you talk a bit to how yoga and your 12-step recoveries held you through mm-hmm. those? I think in the beginning when I was 20, when I went into 12-step recovery, um, being very affected by the disease of addiction um, 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 sets one up either very independent, needless and wantless. I don't need anybody. I don't want anybody. Um, I can do this by myself, which then starts to create this like snowball effect of a very controlling person to control everything around me to make sure that I feel safe and choosing relationships that were out of control that I thought I could have 
control over and life situations, jobs, you know, <laughs> having children. Um, it was a constant practice of like learning um, about myself. And I think we actually, as human beings, need to suffer. Um, it's part of life. And nothing prepares a person for um, meeting someone and falling in love. Nothing prepares us for having a baby. Nothing prepares us for parenthood. Nothing prepares us when our um, partner either relapses on drugs and alcohol. Nothing prepares us for when they die on us. Uh, Nothing prepares us for the things that are going to happen, but everything prepares us for it. And it's the way that you choose to take a look at life. And I think the 12-step recovery program, as well as yoga practices, prepare you to deal and face difficult things and and suffering Mm -hmm. with this ability to start to cultivate self-awareness. And through self-awareness, we have more opportunity to learn about ourselves, self-understanding, self-knowledge, self-inquiry that then starts to lead us down to a path of self-acceptance. And from that acceptance and that wisdom and that awareness, then we can make wiser actions. Whereas, you know, blindly led by ignorance... We keep on doing the same things over and over again, expecting different results is the definition of insanity and and recovery teaches us that it just won't change. And suffering, as um, Buddhism have said, the first noble truth, life is suffering. You know, at the level of change, at the level of birth, as you know what it's like giving Mm. birth to a baby, that's quite, for both you, mom and baby, it's quite intense. Um, aging is going to create suffering, getting ill or a disease is going to create suffering. Ultimately death is suffering. So that idea of like embracing suffering, and that's what I think both platforms of, um, working with recovery as well as yoga embraces suffering as an opportunity to grow. And with that, then we start to create more tools to be able to navigate our life more skillfully to find fulfillment, to find greater moments of deep acceptance, which arise greater amount of serenity or contentment. And then from there, we can actually have um, uh, a clear worldview in that hope of healing on all levels, you know, our past. You know, I, I really do believe that, you know, to honor my past, like when I came into recovery, I needed to go first about my past and honor my past to inform my present because I kept on pulling my past into the present moment and like making the same mistakes over and over again or making the same choices over and over again and still being affected by the trauma of my childhood as if it was happening in the moment. So recovery gave me an opportunity to start to create awareness about what happened, understand it through like-minded people and through other people's stories. And even though they were different, we were sharing the same feelings and and being able to kind of identify and like go, oh my God, I'm not the only one or oh my God, I'm not alone or oh my God, thank God someone else is expressing this because I haven't been able to put it into words. And, you know, when I first came into recovery, I couldn't string two words together to make a sentence. I was a bubbling kind of wreck. And I was always looking at other people going, oh my God, they speak so articulately about life and wow, why, you know, I can't wait to be able to do that. And I find myself... Still not being able to string two words together. But I find like through my enthusiasm of experience, being able to then 
you know, honor what I've gone through, informing my present, being able to move forward in this idea of like, you know, shitty things happen. But I do know over the umbrella of life, it's going to be okay. And yeah, I've had some really shitty things happen. And I've sat there and go, why me? Why me? Why me? And that little voice always comes back and goes, why not? Because I'm the perfect person to practice this stuff because I study it. I, I try to practice these principles in all of my affairs. And, you know, you know, I when I came into recovery, healing from my past and then um, my late husband, unfortunately, after 12 years of recovery, relapsed on heroin and toured and he was a musician and and then got clean. And then a week after he got clean, he got cancer. He was diagnosed with cancer, small cell lung cancer. And he was only given a few weeks to live. And he lasted nine months, but he relapsed again and became very stuck in the addictive um, trap. And that was really hard because we had two kids. And then he passed away. And then trying to create that transition and find that. Um, but thank God, because I had recovery. I had my yoga practice and also the community around me that I've created about, you know, thriving living being joyous but also the shared thing of experience that we're never we're not going to get out of avoiding death we're going to be touched by by all of us and that sense of empathy compassion and the courage to be able to share our stories with each other Mm -hmm. that's what healed me is our community Mm -hmm. that we share that you know mothers to yogis to people in recovery um and our community we heal i don't think we can heal by ourselves we heal together I love that idea. And talking talk about healing and the challenges that you've been through, I was really interested to ask you how you went through what you did with, with your late husband, mm. healing yourself, but also how are you able to hold the girls through that? <laughs> I, I think about it sometimes, you know, I watched you go through it, but now I'm a mum, I look at it really differently. <laughs> I just, I, I, I'm almost speechless as to how you did that. Yeah, I, I sometimes like I stand and I turn around and I go, how did I do that? Oh, my God. <laughs> it, one, you have the resilience because you've never experienced anything like, well, I've never experienced anything like that. Like I knew my husband clean and then he relapsed. I never experienced that before. And then working with, you know, working with someone who received the diagnosis of cancer I, I do that in my work, but not in my personal life and to someone I love. And I was like, oh, my God. And then two girls and trying to explain it to them. And and then the after effect, I kind of think, wow, how did I get through that? But I that idea that yoga, as well as the 12-step recovery program, gave me was a simple little slogan, one day at a time. Mm. And I had no ability to see in two weeks, let alone two days. It was one day at a time. So I kind of compartmentalized my life in living one moment at a time, sometimes five minutes at a time. And I kept on, because I had that real ingrained sense of faith at that time, of, you know, my higher powers with me, I would have, I would do the step three prayer all the time. I hand my will and my life over to you. Do your will for me, not my own. And I'd be able to recite that like a mantra. And we know statistically for one negative thought, it takes five positive thoughts to combat it because our brain are so highly wired in a negative bias that I knew that information. That as soon as that overwhelming thought said, I can't do this, 
yes, you can, Zephyr. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Um, and it was a lot to do with my previous experience. Like I said, nothing can prepare you for a diagnosis of cancer, um, losing a partner and being a single parent. But everything prepares you for it in the small ways of how we navigate our life. And it's just finding the platforms in which to help give you more tools to be able to deal with it. And a lot of it was, is prayer, you know, of really asking for guidance and help. A lot of it was of the practice of connection of faith or trust. And then that ability to just take one moment at a time and the breath is the key and when I had high strong emotions the practice in yoga about focusing on the breath and if in doubt breathe out it was like breathe in that life that joy the birth of the breath breathe in the living because around me I was dying like death was all around it was hard but that ability to exhale and that exhale just ease that very strong spike of adrenaline cortisol strong emotions and that I had that and sometimes I would have to walk around with my hands over my breastbone holding my heart in because it felt like my heart had physically cracked and I didn't know how to like hold it together and I would teach with my hands against my chest I would go and walk around the street just like it's gonna fall out (laughs) I would go to meetings and thank god meetings were there because I would be there and I would cry and I'd get angry and I would express all my emotions. But no one tried to fix me. No one tried to tell me what to do. I just was a platform in which to be able to um, be there, have people hold space for me and witness me. All I wanted was my pain to be seen, to feel validated in my story, to feel like I was heard. And, you know, that was the kind of the only thing because no one I knew no one could take my suffering away and no one could make it better but I won the lot no one could take that away but all I needed was just to sit in that chair in a little church hall and nursery hall and have a collective consciousness of people hearing me seeing me and and identifying with me without saying Zephyr you know what you should do you should do this because I was like you know, I did like, if anybody did that, I was like, piss off. Unless I went, I need help. Mm. Um, and I had to learn how to receive graciously during that time. I had to ask for help, like with the girls, I had to seek out extra support. And this is where I think it takes a village to raise a family. I couldn't do it by myself. I can't do it by myself. I need more people to help raise those girls. I am incomplete. And um, I had babysitters and nannies and friends. And unfortunately, I live, you know, ocean and and a whole continent away from my family. So I was kind of doing it by myself here. But I had Adam's family, his mom and his brother. And I had a great kind of extended family here. And but I had to learn how not to be needless and wantless anymore. Mm. I had to go. I need this. And I really want a hug right now. Why do you think we find it so hard to ask for help? I know, you know, I, I've found that since becoming a mum. Mm. I don't know why I found it really hard. You know, friends have even offered, do you want me to come and look after Jessie? And I, no, 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 I'm fine, we're fine, mm-hmm. we're great. You know, and I'm sort of on this path with you. Mm. Um, why, why do you think that is? I think culturally and what is fed to us women um, through media, through 
um, magazines, through other parents, um, the competitiveness, like the whole feminist movement about us working is great. I love my independence. I love being a working parent. Um, and I really love it. But I also realized that I love being a mom and I love taking that very feminine role and I love being able to nurture, Mm. but I also really love doing my job. So I'm doing a load. I'm doing a lot more. And I think when we show a vulnerability of kind of someone offering help and we, we go, yeah, can you help me? We feel like almost like it's a sign that we're not capable. The shame spiral of kind of going, oh, they might see that I'm not perfect or I, I, I can't do it. Or, you know, it, it's a weird, it's a weird unconscious then we feel guilty, like we're bad or we're not a good mom or we're weak or, Mm. um, and so I think it is to do with like, like what are the bar of competitiveness and what is expected of women, um, to be. And I see a lot working in London and working with a lot of women, working women and stay home women. They're never satisfied. The working women feel guilty that they're not at home. And the women who are at home feel guilty that they're not working. And then they perceive that everybody else is judging them because they're not fulfilling the whole role. And then women who are being a mom as well as working feel exhausted. And they just feel guilty because they can't satisfy everybody's needs. <laughs> Do you feel guilt? Yeah. Well, it's, it's kind of... I know that I'm doing the best I can. And I know the girls are going to grow up and they're going to have issues. And I'd rather have them have stuff rather than me try to make it so perfect and cotton wool them and be, you know, like I'd rather expose them to real life. Like, mommy's tired. I'm cranky. I'm intolerant. I'm impatient right now. And I'm going to try to make an amends to you and say, you know, I'm sorry, but I... You know, I've just saw nine clients today and I'm at my wits end. And it's like, yeah, I feel guilty that I spent all my good energy taking care of other people. And I come Mm -hmm. home and you get the kind of lesser part of me. It's not ideal. But I also, I live in London. I'm a working mom. I have to pay bills. And yes, I have a partner now, lovely husband who, who he's the one who, because he has more of a nine to five job and he can work at home that he um, cooks the meals mainly and he does more of the kind of homework with the girls and he makes sure that the chores are done with the girls. I come home and I'm exhausted because I have a lot more hours that I'm working. And um, so in a way, he's risen to that kind of male archetype of actually embodying both roles instead of being the traditional male I have a really good partner, so I don't feel as guilty. And the girls are exposed to two parents who work, but two parents who really love them, but also two parents who are imperfect mm. and that it's okay not to be able to manage everything, but it's, it's also okay to kind of go, you know what? Totally screwed up there. I'm really sorry. Let's try to do this differently next time and not to feel guilt or shame of screwing up. You know, making a mistake doesn't mean that you failed. It just means that it doesn't work that way and to try to do something different. And I, it's hard for me because I overwork 
and all the time. And then I get back into the middle path of moderation and then I overwork. And who gets affected is my family and me ultimately. How do you manage your energy then? Because you, you do such a giving job. Mm. How, how do you draw that energy back into yourself? Um, my morning time is very precious. Like the whole family knows not to talk to me in the morning. <laughs> it's I, like my husband. <laughs> yeah, I have this like real high sensory sensitivity. And my morning time is kind of a sacred time. I love getting up really early. It's very magical. What time do you get up? Usually at dawn. So at the moment it's like five. And I try to stay until 5.30, but I can feel myself kicking myself to get up. And I have a little morning ritual, you know, and I love coffee. You know, I'm very kappa imbalanced and I'm very, I like coffee. It, It suits me. And have my cup of coffee and I do my little, um, uh, praying, meditating, my little uh, mantra practice, setting up the day and the intention of the day. And and then I go into emails and I do the little things that I... And it's quiet. And then the one daughter gets up and the other daughter gets up. The husband gets up. The dog's in bed. And, and then I go out and see clients. And so I fill my spiritual well and prepare myself. And then throughout the day in between, I listen to audio, audible books because listening to the radio or listening to my own thoughts in between my ears is never a good thing. I actually fill myself and I, li- I listen to podcasts, listen to TED Talks, I listen to audible books um, and try to refill. And sometimes I do japa practice where I do mantra practice to kind of um, like make sure that I'm healing myself and connecting and feeding myself. Um, and then if I have extra time in between clients, I'll sit in the car or sit on a bench and I'll do a meditation practice to really receive and I give, but I need to, I need to do like at least two to three yoga nidras a a week. Um, because I give so much, Mm. um, like I went to a meditation meeting today, an Al-Anon meeting, which is a meditation meeting. Uh, the theme is a meditation meeting and instead of sitting in a chair meditating I actually move the chair light on the floor put my legs up in Viparina Kranani and pretty much use the meeting as a yoga nidra I listened to the meeting and got into a lucid state and I felt safe I felt held and I was listening to people's stories and and um, was able to wake myself up and then go see a client and then come and see you so um I find that I need my brain to go offline. I need sleep, but I also need that sense of connection. So it is to do with prayer and meditation, mm. that constant contact with God. So if there's a mum listening who's, you know, maybe struggling with some of the things we were talking about, feeling mm. disconnected, mm. frustrated, maybe angry, guilty a lot of the time, mm. but feels pretty overwhelmed by the, you know, how immersed your practice is. Mm. What could be, where could someone start with some of this stuff? Mm. What would you say? Well, when the child is napping, get a cup of tea. And the best place is just to sit quietly and see something beautiful. You know, we're wired in such a way, we're comma, the desire to see beauty, the desire to hear beautiful things, see beautiful things. It's like sit yourself somewhere that you really feel safe, you feel nurtured, and you see something beautiful. And that sense of doing a gratitude list. So if you find it really hard to meditate, you're like, really see a flower outside your window or see a tree in the shape of the tree. 
and find ways of talking to yourself mentally or sometimes verbally about what kind of beauty you do feel and the appreciation, the warmth of the cup in your hands, you know, the way your tea tastes, the way it smells, the way you feel inside your clothing, how it, it touches you. And that sense of just actively sitting there um, doing a gratitude list. Um, and if you're able to, if you find still that's really challenging, listening to something positive, an audiobook, a lecture, a TED talk, but sit instead of kind of multitasking of looking Facebook and Instagram or, you know, looking at your emails or trying to do laundry, just practice sitting and being rather than doing, being a human doing versus being a human being. And hear, listen, and or as you sit and do a gratitude list, then pray, you know, that sense of asking your needs to be met. And starting to get used to a language in which um, you're able to articulate what your needs are, what you'd like, your desires. And it's human to desire. It's just the attachment to the outcome. And it's that sense of, you know, we all want to know our purpose. We all need the financial means and tools to support our purpose. We need beautiful things in our life, um, families, art, beautiful flowers that you gave me that are really lovely and peachy, you know, those bring happiness. But then we also desire moksha, which is spiritual liberation, that sense of peace, that void within to be filled. And no amount of social media, no amount of shopping, no amount of sex, no amount of a partner giving you validation, no amount of anything on the external will fill that. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. And therapy is a space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. Therapy is just an incredible, safe non-judgmental space. I absolutely love it. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule, which I think as busy mums is what we all need. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash motherkind today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash motherkind. It's a real deep kind of seated connection to your experience of a higher power. And the only way we get to experience that is actually forming a relationship with it. And whether you're atheist and you don't believe in anything, you can put the highest virtue of man or nature in there. If you're a Buddhist, you put Buddha in there. If you're Christian, you put Jesus in there. If you're Muslim, you put Allah in there. But that sense that the divine is within you as you and working with you and for you to wake you up to its presence in everything. And as you look out that window, connecting as if the divine is looking through your eyes, and that idea that you're not alone, and that void can be filled with that shape of that gratitude, that contentment. And you know, the earlier on this year, I have everything that I want. I have a beautiful husband, family. I have a dog, a fur baby now. You know, I have a home. I have the financial means to be able to support my family now and I feel safe. That I have everything, but there was this discontent. 
this uncertainty and discontent. And I had to sit with it for about three months going, sitting in my meditation, I go, I feel discontent. And it was frustrating, but it was another tool to practice. What does it feel like to sit with my feelings that are undesirable? And so you sit there and you kind of go, yeah, I feel discontent, but I still can appreciate the blooming tree in my backyard. And I can see it even though I'm sitting with discontent. And I think that's what recovery and yoga has been able to do, is that I can hold in one hand undesirable feelings and thoughts, and in the other one, desirable feelings and thoughts, but have this detachment from it, and knowing that I can actually um, see it, but not misidentify it, like, this is who I am. I'm my bad feelings and my thoughts, or I'm my good things and my feelings and my thoughts, and actually see that, it's just something my body's experiencing, you know, going into that witnessing state of awareness of sitting there and going, isn't it really cool that I can witness that my body has an intelligence to breathe? I can see my body breathing. I am that which is experiencing my body breathing. I'm exper- I am that which is experiencing me smell. I'm ex- that which is experiencing sound and that mystery and curiosity of like, what is not like, what are you, but you know, like, ha- like what is behind that consciousness? And a lot of the time we have this ex- existential crisis of like, who am I? We start misidentifying. I am a wife. I am a mother. I'm tired. I'm stressed. You know, I'm not getting my needs met. I'm not feeling appreciated. And we start misidentifying with our thoughts and our feelings and our identity and our social class and creed and how much money we have, if we have the right nanny or the bugaboo, or if we have, you know, the right car and the, you know, like all of a sudden that social pressure. That's not what I am is that essence, not who I am. What I am is that essence that is always awake, that is pure, that is loving, that is content, that is this kind of deep unsurpassed calm of pure conscious awakened awareness and that that I get to sit in a given moment and connect to it so it's just like five minutes baby sleep in like say okay I need a break and just sit and the more often you do that even like if you go to the loo and you're washing your hands be fully present of how you're washing your hands feel the soap and the temperature of the water The more often you are mindful throughout the whole day, the sum total at the end of the day, you're going to feel more satisfied because we're a sum total of all of our thoughts and feelings. So if I think, I'm so tired, I'm so stressed, I'm so tired, I'm so stressed, at the end of the day, you're going to feel like a sum total of your choices. But if you had more moments of lovely things, then you're going to actually feel more satisfied at the end of the day. So just like little tricks of being able to, you know, use simple tools to help navigate your day. I think I think it's so. I love the way that you describe that about the the micro choices that we make through our day, mm. culminate in how the day is, how the week is, how the month is. Before you know it, how the mm. years are. And then you look at your ch- child as you saw my eldest yeah. daughter, who's twelve, come out, yeah. and I used to be <laughs> breastfeeding in that meeting yeah. that we go to, and it's like. Oh my God, she's the same size as you. That's so crazy. But the mindfulness is incomplete without compassion. And a lot of people are into this mindfulness movement. And 
it's not being conveyed properly. How, tell me how, how she. Well, it? you can be mindful and look at that lady across the way and kind of go, oh my God, that outfit, I'm so mindful, that's a really bad outfit. <laughs> you can be mindful. And the idea of wording mindful means that you're full of mind. So what I now have been kind of trying to change in my, the way that I communicate mindfulness is awakefulness, awarefulness. But it is incomplete without compassion. Because if you are not connected to that loving, kind heart, that intention for compassion of that real deep self-acceptance and that loving, kind eyes like Buddha nature, what is mindfulness? You're just Mm -hmm. going, she needs to shop somewhere else because those trousers don't look good (laughs) on her. I'm so mindful of that. So that idea Mm -hmm. of, you know, mindfulness is incomplete without compassion. And in yoga and in a lot of Eastern philosophies, they don't separate the mind and heart. They're one. They don't see it. We, in the West, we separate it. But they see it as one. And that idea that every thought, I think I'm stressed, you feel stressed. And they're highly linked. And they can't figure out which one comes first. Is it the feeling of stress? Then the thought goes, I'm stressed. Or is the thought that's stress? Then you feel stressed. And so it's like starting to look at that mind and heart connection and that the only way that we form a relationship with it is constant contact of like checking up taking inventory taking responsibility and accountability for how you're feeling i think that compassion is so important especially self-compassion because i know you know on that path of awakefulness you know when you start to do it i know i was shocked at the level of abusive thoughts I was having mm-hmm. to myself. And I needed that second part, yeah. the compassion, in order to not beat myself up more for that. Yeah. I can't believe how negative I am, but, you know. Yeah. So I, th- I think it's, you're right, without that second part, mm. it could actually be another tool mm. to berate ourselves. Yeah, and that's why in yoga they give you certain mantra practices, that it has a certain meaning behind it, and it has certain archetypes behind it, and that you say it over and over and again, so you imprint the meaning and the power behind that mantra. But in recovery, when I first started, when I was 20, my sponsor, because I had so much self-loathing, mm. I thought I was ugly, I thought I was fat, I thought I was stupid. My favorite thing to say to myself is, you're stupid and I hate you. And it was like this real strong negative wiring. Every It would just go into that it's very strong, you're so stupid, you're so stupid, you're so stupid. And that it was so violent and so harmful. So my sponsor said, Zephyr, every time you clock yourself saying that, I want you to say, I love you, Zephyr. And it was like, almost like I had a little bit of sick in my mouth when she told me I had to say that. (laughs) It took me four years to practice that, to start to believe it. It took me four years. That's how deeply rooted and ingrained that routine and habit. And we, once we have a routine that creates a habit, we neurologically cannot break it. We can weaken it, but we can't break it. Hence why like you had a routine of learning how to ride a bike and you now have a habit of riding a bike. But if you stop riding a bike for 10 years and you get on a bike, you quickly know how to ride a bike because it's so hardwired in this um, part of the brain called the dorsal striatum that you cannot break a habit. Hence why addicts cannot break the habit of addiction. But you can weaken it by something that is equal or more than 
that gives you dopamine, that gives you happiness. So that negative bias of one negative thought takes five positive thoughts. You have to almost say it. Then you have to start to fake it to make it, fake it to become it. And then you start to believe it. And you are like, I love you. You know, and you start, I only learned how to love myself by watching other people love themselves. And so that's why meetings and also yoga classes were such a great way for me to learn about myself is like they mirrored a way, a a path for me. And it is, yeah, it is, it, 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 it sounds like now I'm preaching, but (laughs) the only two (laughs) things that seem to work (laughs) and, and that negative bias of kind of saying, I love you, Zephyr. And then it changes over time. Like God is with me. God is with me. God is with me. And then my, my Sanskrit mantras, and then I go back to my English mantras and, you know, and I kind of now bespoke it for however I'm feeling, but starting that first awareness of stopping the parasitic um, negative train of thought it's key you got to stop it and I used to have to shout out stop it ever stop it and I was in my old job I ran a fashion company when I was really young here in London and it was just myself and my boss and we were sitting at the desk which is open plan and I was behind the computer screen and I was like going on and on in my brain and I just shouted out I love you and all of a sudden you could see my boss just like perk up and get really rigid and I just shrunk behind my computer we didn't say a thing we were just like and I so be careful about sometimes you have like Tourette's moments of kind of like trying to stop the crazy monkeys between your own ears definitely should be an internal thing in, yeah in public but sometimes it comes out and you're walking down the street and you have to shout at yourself to stop the negative train but you have to replace it I think that's the key. And especially for mums, you know, I think it's so easy to have that dialogue, isn't it? I'm not doing mm. it well enough, not doing it right, not doing whatever the hell all those things yeah. are. But I think, you know, and you're right, there's so much conversation about being aware of that now, of the mindfulness mm. movement, but we have to replace it. With something. We have to replace it with something positive. Otherwise, mm. we don't change it, do we? It just We just become aware of it, which is step mm-hmm. one, of course, yeah. you know, we need to become aware and then... And then take action around that. Mm, mm. So before we we finish, there's something that I've been asking everyone, mm. which is, and I can't wait to hear what you're going to say on this, Seth. <laughs> <laughs> uh, might not be that profound. <laughs> Make it profound. Is um, if you could gift one thing mm. to all the mothers in the world, mm. what would you what would you gift them? Hmm. that you're not in it in this alone you know and to find a community of like-minded mothers and and to be brave enough and vulnerable enough to share your truth and what you're struggling with um i remember when i first had aura and my late husband was gigging quite a lot and i was left alone I I thought I was going to be this amazing earth mother. You know, I was raised on a hippie commune. I've attended tons of home births. I, you know, had natural births. I had this envision that I was going to be this earth mother. And as soon as Aura came out, I went, where's that euphoric feeling? Where's that euphoric feeling? It took me a long time to fall in love with um, Aura. And I remember, you know, when I did, I finally, it hit me. 
because I had a, I had 36 hours of labor. I was really exhausted. I was really tired. I had tears and, and you know, um, sutures. And my husband was like, I've lost my wife. You know, you used to be the sexual goddess and now you're just consumed with the baby. So I had pressure at home. And then I was like, I just want to go back to work. You know, I'm trapped. I'm surgically attached to this baby. You know, like all of a sudden I just wasn't coping. And I went to these mom and baby groups and I started sharing my feelings and it was almost they looked at me like I had leprosy. And I was like, oh my God. So I then had to isolate. And I had to share it at meetings. And I was able to go to meetings and share. But I couldn't share with the other moms. And I went back to one of these mom groups like nine months later. The funny thing was, is all these moms who had perfect blow-dried hair, who had the bugaboos, who all had the banker's husbands, and all had the nannies, and all had this, were all falling apart. And they were like, my husband's having an affair with the nanny, my husband's having an affair with their secretary, you know, my husband doesn't do anything, doesn't appreciate, he's been giving so much pressure, and, you know, I can't, um, I can't hold my bladder, I still have, you know, incontinence problems. And I'm like, where were you guys when I needed you? And they said, I'm so sorry, Zephyr. It just freaked us out because we thought that we had to be perfect and that everybody else was keeping up with the Joneses. Like this was a real easy breezy thing. And it was like, oh God. And I, that part of me like, why me? Why me? Why do I always have to be the... But it was like, why not? And I was there and able to kind of support them and talk to them and listen to their stories and go, you're not alone. God, God, I've been dealing with the same thing. And I have like a husband who is pretty much like a third child. He's like a teenager and I'm dealing with it, you know, like, so it's more about finding a community where you don't feel like you're broken, that you feel heard, you feel you're seen, you're validated, and that no one's putting extra pressure of shaming you because you don't get it right, or you're still in your yoga clothes, and you're still, you know, you still have sick on you, and you know, like, it's like the pressure we put upon ourselves, and that sense of, I really felt the second time around, because I've remarried, and I realized I put my work first, then I put the children, then I put my husband, and then I put myself. And I was last down the line. I had to put myself first. It's like putting on your oxygen mask to take care of other people. I need to make sure my well was filled. Spiritual well-being, physical, everything. I, I was the kingpin of everything. Then it was my relationship. It was not the kids, because the kids are going to grow up and bugger off. What's going to be left is my relationship with my husband. And so to make sure I have a friendship, a sensual relationship and an intimate relationship with my partner, then the kids, because if mommy and daddy are okay, the kids are more than likely going to be able to feel safe and secure in their life and be able to grow and thrive even when they fall over and bust their knee. Then it's my work. And I still get those things mixed up. Because, you know, priorities change and it's fluid and it's circular. It's not linear. But that idea of not putting that much pressure and when we catch ourselves, like I catch myself overworking right now, I'm like, red flags, I need to take care of myself. I need to go to meetings. I need to reach out and call friends and go, 
oh my God, I've done it again. Or, oh my God, I'm feeling this. Or, oh, you know, this is... And that shared experience of having friends, a community, or a place to be able, even sometimes you have to pay for it. You know, finding a therapist is like having an MOT. Don't don't go into shame spiral around paying someone to have this. Or if, if you do have a chemical imbalance, go on medication. It, there's no shame in it. And this whole... Um, I did this book with Fern Cotton recently on happiness. And it's like trying to, like, say... You know, like, take away the taboo of not coping. You know, we're in social media. We have so much magazines and this pressure that if you got this, if you look like this, if you buy this, all the exterior things, you you should be happy. And people get it. And they're like, I'm still not happy. And it's an inside job. So finding different tools. But it it takes like-minded people. Um, But it also, you have to trust these other people so that's the element of finding people that you can share this without you know being hurt or giving your trust Mm -hmm. away that idea of it takes a community but it takes a huge amount of compassion and that courage to be vulnerable that that heroism to kind of go i'm not coping and that you're not alone all of us experience it and that we're not alone but it's just finding the people that you do feel like your people, your people. And um, they come in all different shapes and forms. Yeah. That's beautiful, Zeph. <laughs> I hope that makes sense. <laughs> it's such a powerful message. It's, and I think it's just, you know, that's what I'm hoping to do with Malakind. That's yeah. why I started it. Yeah. Because I wanted to find a tribe of mums who wanted to talk in this way. How, yeah. you know, I want to be vulnerable. I'm. Everyone says I go too deep too quick. I, I want to get to yeah. the real stuff, you know? And yeah. so, you know, that's what it's about. Yeah, the real stuff. It's like, and I think we're in a generation now, like because of the Oprah generation, we're used to starting to develop our emotional intelligence and our spiritual intelligence and being able to have, you know, factual kind of intelligence. But this sense of like, now being able to articulate a lot more but with that information without the kind of power or the the kind of energy or vitality behind it we can't express it or convey it and so that's really good that you know you're doing kundalini yoga which really gives you a lot of these cities these these pranic powers the life force power and with your study of um uh, 12 steps of recovery your experience of being a mom you know your previous studies of your job what you used to do you know you're an intelligent human being you have a lot of wisdom and knowledge and now you have this kind of um, th- thriving kind of um, vitality behind you you're going to be more effective and also more efficient and being able to support more people and I think that's what kind of yoga and um, 12 steps recovery are doing is in empowering people to become more self-knowledgeable, um, self-understanding, but also make them very powerful human beings. Knowledge without power, it's ineffective. Mm. Ignorance and a lot of power, you get a Donald Trump. <laughs> so go there. Yeah, we don't need to go there. But that idea that you just like you need both. You need both. And so for moms, like 
audiobooks. Put them in your ears, walk the butt baby around the park, listen to something spiritual or educational, something that's feeding you. Make choices that draw you closer to spirit than farther away. And also practice gratitude lists and then practice delaying gratification. That's huge. So you have you're sitting at the doctor's surgery. Your baby's asleep in the buggy and you want to go on your phone because you're left idle and you want to go in social media. Delay it. Sit there and just feel what it feels like to delay gratification and feel that heightened tightness or heat that you want to reach for your phone and just feel what that feeling feels like. Take a few big deep breaths, inhale and exhale. Sense in your body where you're feeling your stuff, what common thoughts you're having, what common feelings you're having, and keep breathing and lengthening the exhale and be in your body. That idea of awarefulness, mindfulness, awakefulness, be there. And then within, you know, three minutes, five minutes, then look at your phone. But we're so wired in this very addictive reaction, consumerism, kind of like instant gratification that we're kind of like, we can't, we don't have a choice. We're led by our senses that if you can actually sit there and just delay gratification, it's a really good practice. This isn't mine. This is, this is Buddhism and yoga and this is what they, they, their methods, but it's the idea of taking a moment and being quiet and seeing what's going on. Mm-hmm. And, and then, what a great thing to teach yeah. our children as well. Yes. If we can model that. Yeah. You know, and, and teach that. And gratitude lists as well. Mm. I can't wait. You know, my husband always laughs at me because he says I'm going to be teaching all this to Jessie before she understands it. But I Just can't wait, wait to do gratitude lists with her. It backfires. So I was at this front door and I was yelling at the girls, get your shoes on, come on, we're going to be late. Girls, ugh! And my daughter goes, Mommy, got to change your attitude to gratitude. And I just was like, one, I just wanted to go and like, and then I just like my face, I just started laughing and it just made me just giggle and almost wee myself because it was just like, (laughs) yeah, that's so true. Yeah. Or, um, because I used to go be like, change your attitude to gratitude. (laughs) (laughs) They're going to mirror that shit back to us. I know. know. Oh God. It was just perfect. Oh, what a good note to end on. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you you for having me.